Welcome to the Free the Economy podcast. I'm your host, Richard Morrison. I'm a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and this is episode 49 for November 30th, 2023. Free the Economy is about how we can all become happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control. We believe in a voluntary society where consent, rather than force, governs human interactions. And while the economy we have now offers many opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment, we know that we can do even better. Reminder that you can always find our show notes with links to the stories we cover at the Competitive Enterprise Institute blog at cei.org slash blog. If you like the show, please leave us a review and follow us on Twitter at free the underscore economy. This week, we're going to start by covering some recent headlines and events that you should know about and then go on to our interview with Travis Fisher, Director of Energy and Environmental Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. It's time again for an update on the abundance agenda and how we can create an economy in the U.S. with material plenty for everyone. Our old friends at the Breakthrough Institute, including Ashley Nunes, Ted Nordhaus, and our episode 15 guest, Alex Trembath, have a new article out on how we can assure energy abundance and affordability in the U.S. They go over the last couple of decades of energy policy, recapping how nuclear deployment has basically ground to a halt after the creation of the nuclear Regulatory Commission in the 1970s, and how coal has been gradually replaced by less greenhouse gas intensive natural gas. Looking at the near term future and what both major policies might do next, however, they come to a reassuring political calculus, writing, quote, all sides agree at the end of the day that abundant, affordable energy is non-negotiable, end quote. This, for example, would mean no left-wing environmental degrowth policies for the United States, and that's a prospect I certainly hope they're right about. The breakthrough authors also describe the recent legislative history of the failed Build Back Better bill and the eventual success of the Inflation Reduction Act, sponsored by Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, as part of the legislative deal that got the IRA passed, Democrats in the Senate promised to vote on meaningful permitting reform to allow more energy infrastructure to be built more quickly, but that didn't quite work out as planned. Trembath et al. write, quote, While some of Manchin's proposed permitting reforms were ultimately including in the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, the modesty of those reforms in contrast to the scope and ambition of the IRA and the White House's commitment to regulations on carbon emissions, reveal a democratic coalition more supportive of incentives and regulations than sensible deregulatory policies to lower the cost of infrastructure expansion, end quote. So not much actual progress on permitting reform so far. They also predict something I've long assumed would be true, which is that so-called green energy companies while popular with environmentalists in their experimental phase, will come to be seen as just another collection of industrial behemoths as they move into the mainstream. The article explains, quote, Meanwhile, the marriage of convenience between low-carbon industries and the institutional environmentalist movement will grow more and more distant as environmentalist technophobia and deeply held aversion to industrial development increasingly conflict with the need to put low-carbon steel in the ground. Industries working to take advantage of public subsidies will increasingly encounter opposition from their erstwhile environmentalist allies who remain dedicated to protecting legacy environmental and land use regulations that obstruct low carbon technology and infrastructure deployment, end quote. Looking to the next phase of energy policy, the authors argue that, quote, a forward looking agenda to advance energy abundance in the United States 
will rely less on increasing public funds for favored industries and more on lowering the cost of capital and removing regulatory constraints on the commercialization and construction, energy technologies, and infrastructure, end quote. And they list four principles that they think should guide policymaking for energy abundance. One, pragmatic deregulation. Two, friend-shoring production, that is, cutting out China and Russia from supply chains as much as possible. Three, expanding nuclear generation capacity. And four, bottom-up techno-optimism. You can find the full article, Pragmatic Politics for Energy Abundance and Affordability, at liberalpatriot.com. On a similar theme, the magazine American Affairs has a series called Overcoming Vetocracy, the term for political process that includes so many possible veto points that it becomes functionally impossible to create or build anything big or important. The Foundation for American Innovation's Thomas Hockman has an interesting contribution to this series titled It's Not Just NEPA, Reforming Environmental Permitting. NEPA, of course, is the National Environmental Policy Act, first passed in 1970, which has come to be the number one culprit, according to many experts, when it comes to why building major new energy, transportation, and industrial facilities has become so expensive, slow, and difficult in the United States. Thomas, however, argues that the problem is actually much bigger than that. He writes, quote, NEPA is just one of a patchwork of environmental laws that impact industry in the United States. Several other 50-year-old statutes, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, the Clean Water Act, and above all, the 1970 Clean Air Act, play an enormous role in dictating manufacturing firms' decisions. Indeed, in 2017, the Department of Commerce reached out to manufacturing stakeholders about the greatest regulatory barriers to development. The resulting report found that a provision of the Clean Water Act was the most commonly cited barrier, and two Clean Air Act provisions, New Source Performance Standards and New Source Review, rounded out the top three. NEPA didn't even make the top ten. End quote. Thomas explains how bureaucratic sclerosis created by environmental regulation led to, for example, U.S. falling behind in chip making, one of the key industries for any advanced economy, and one of special concern as we look to the possibility of communist China, perhaps invading Taiwan, where the overwhelming majority of the most advanced microchips are currently produced. According to his analysis, quote, the Clean Air Act today is the greatest regulatory barrier to manufacturing in the United States, end quote. And while he doesn't think it's going to be amended by Congress anytime soon, he does conclude that, quote, there are reasons to be optimistic in the short term. A number of solutions could be implemented by the EPA tomorrow. There are policies that state legislatures could pass this year. These policies are not the sort of thing that gets much press coverage, but each small win can have huge ripple effects for American industry. Reducing the permitting timeline for a single semiconductor facility can save that facility millions of dollars a day. Just a few success stories can bring greater investment moving forward, end quote. Once again, you can find that article online at AmericanAffairsJournal.org. There was a big flurry of attention over gas stoves some months back when the head of the Consumer Product Safety Commission suggested that his agency would be moving forward with regulations to restrict or even ban gas stoves in home kitchens. People, like myself, who raised concerns about this approach were accused of being crazy conspiracy theorists spouting wild theories until it became abundantly clear that quite a few policymakers, politicians, and environmental activists were, in fact, working to do exactly that and ban gas stoves. New York State, in fact, has already set in motion a ban on gas stoves in new construction buildings, with the result that will be effectively illegal to install them as soon as 2026. My colleague Ben Lieberman has been writing about this issue quite a bit and recently blogged about the testimony he gave before the House Small Business Committee on why the Biden administration's appliance regulations are bad for small businesses and homeowners. Ben writes, 
quote, the Department of Energy bureaucrats are making 2023 a bad year for homeowners with an avalanche of proposed and final appliance regulations impacting stoves, washing machines, ceiling fans, furnaces, refrigerators, dishwashers, and air conditioners. Each threatens higher appliance prices, compromised performance, and reduced choice. This regulatory onslaught also hurts small business owners, which was the subject of a November 8th small business committee hearing, end quote. Ben points out that the proposed stove rule is part of the Biden administration's larger war on natural gas use in general in favor of the electrification of everything for the sake of climate change. This plan hurts many small businesses that rely on natural gas for cooking, heating, or other purposes. And the Department of Energy itself admits that gas is cheaper than electricity on a per unit energy basis, even as it advances appliance regulations that tilt the balance away from gas and towards electric versions. Ben also reminds us that the line between home appliances and business ones is thin. Many of the smallest small business owners operate their businesses out of their homes, including small catering and food delivery services that rely on the unique features that gas stoves offer. You can find that blog post, Biden Admin Appliance Regulations Are Bad for Small Businesses and Homeowners, at cei.org slash blog. Finally, there's always a fair amount of cynicism about managers in the workplace, with complaining about one's boss being one of the most time-honored traditions among workers pretty much everywhere. According to a recent survey by Rachel Minkin at the Pew Research Center, however, opinions about bosses in the U.S. these days are actually fairly positive. While only a relatively small share of U.S. workers say they are highly satisfied with their pay and opportunities for promotion, most are highly satisfied with their relationship with their manager or supervisor. A majority of workers, 55%, say their manager or supervisor is excellent or very good to work for. About half or more rate their boss highly on leadership dimensions, such as giving employees flexibility to balance work and personal life and staying calm under pressure. Majorities also describe their boss as capable, confident, and fair. Notably, these assessments don't vary whether or not the boss is a man or a woman. The survey also asked workers about their boss's race and ethnicity. Those responses also found no consistent differences in how people describe white, black, or Hispanic bosses, uh, though apparently there weren't enough workers with Asian bosses to analyze their responses separately. That survey, Most American Workers Say Their Boss is Capable, Confident, and Fair, is available at pewresearch.org. Those are the headlines for episode 49. Now we'll move on to our interview with the Cato Institute's Travis Fisher. All right. Now I'd like to welcome to the show Travis Fisher, Director of Energy and Environmental Policy Studies at the Cato Institute here in Washington, D.C. Welcome to Free the Economy, Travis. Thank you. Great to be here. All right. So we talk a lot about energy here on the podcast. Uh, you know, we like to call, uh, like Julian's, like the economist Julian Simon did, we like to call energy the, uh, uh, the master resource that makes a lot of everything else in, uh, in society and in our economy possible. Uh, and we also often complain about the rules and regulations uh, that producing and deploying new energy sources are subject to. Um, but it's less often we get a chance to talk to someone who's actually worked on the other side of the issue. So my question to you, to start with, what's it like coming from a background where you've been at places like Federal Energy Regulatory Commission or the Department of Energy? And what's it like now to be a kind of policy advocate, someone who's in the nonprofit and think tank world? Yeah, I've seen the dark side. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, 
I actually started, so I started my career as an intern at the John Locke Foundation, very free market state level think tank in Raleigh. And one of my advisors at the at that point said, well, you know, we always complain about government doing too much or, you know, you don't want the regulatory state to overreach and all of that stuff. And the, the question at the time was because I had a job offer from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, was doing a lot of hiring at the time, which I think tied back to the Energy Policy Act of 2005. So this is the spring of 2006. And the question was, do you stay in just the think tank? I don't want to say just the think tank space. Do you stay in the think tank space or do you get your hands dirty and go into the the belly of the beast? And uh, I chose the latter. And I think it was it was a good, it definitely was good experience because the hands-on experience, I think, was different from the way that I hear folks talk about it. It's almost like, well, the government just wants more power, more control, more. And, it, you know, that might be true in sort of an abstract sense, but it's always it's always more complicated than that. I found a lot of really good, hardworking people, a lot of legitimate public servants. And I think that has sort of shaped my my views a bit and has given me a more positive approach to, you know, if you want to change policy, it's not only that you want fewer of these folks, which I think it's fair to say we have a bloated federal workforce, but acknowledge that they are doing important work. And at the very least, if you want, you know, to close down an agency or you want them to do less, then the question is, do you do you have a plan for who's going to pick up the, you know, the worthwhile things that they were doing? Um, so that, that that has been a much more interesting layer to add to it instead of just the approach that like, oh, let's just shut it all down, which don't get me wrong. I have days where that is the exact feeling that I feel is let's just let's just close this whole federal enterprise. But I, I think the and the other side of that is the technical expertise. There are some things that, you know, FERC is a great example. It's it's an independent agency, ostensibly independent, um, does a lot of highly technical work. So I'm not sure how else you would get that expertise without going straight for it or, or doing like a FERC practice at, at a, a law firm would, would be the other example. But it's really detailed technical work that you, that you basically have to do in a hands-on way to learn. Speaking of seeing things from a different perspective, I wonder if you think there are things that uh, that get misunderstood by the public in general when it comes to you know how we produce energy in the United States, and uh, because obviously any any policymaker, any politicians, if they are you know if they have the idea of putting any uh, reforms on the way energy is produced in America, they have to deal with public opinion. But of course. If the, if the public is uh, sort of misguided about how things exist in the first place, then that obviously creates a problem for anyone trying to uh, put together a solution for uh, tomorrow. So is there other topics out there that you think that like the average person, simply because they're not an expert, of course, uh, sort of doesn't quite get about how we how we keep the lights on? I think step one is understanding that um your electricity doesn't just come from the outlet and your wall. I think uh, I was certainly guilty of that until, you know, I started to study this stuff. I just didn't really know that much about it. Sort of had a general idea. You can see power lines and things like that. So if you're on the road, you see like a giant transmission line, think, well, that's that's the grid. Um, so so people's personal experience with it, especially on, on the electricity side, 
it's not really that in depth. I mean, unless you go on a you know, tour of a power plant, you don't really know how it works. But that's the one thing that I would point to is when people think it's that easy, if it's just the thing that comes out of your outlet, then reforms to it should be easy too. Um, <clears throat> so if you don't understand the full complexity of the system, then it becomes easy as a talking point to say, well, let's just do wind, solar, batteries, blah, blah, blah. You can sort of fill in the blank with the thing that you like, which is, I think what politicians get away with because people don't really have a deep understanding of, you know, the, the complexity of the system. So if you think it's a simple system, it's simple to change. If you recognize that it's a very complex system, you realize that in order to make sweeping changes, uh, even if you think that's the right policy, uh, the details matter. And I, I don't think, you know, if, if it's the average voter saying, yeah, I like green stuff. Um, there's there's just so much more to it than that. <clears throat> well, I know I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, I mentioned this in the uh, podcast this week as well, that uh, the American Nuclear Society had their uh, meeting here, their, their winter meeting here in Washington, D.C. And so there were a lot of experts, a lot of people talking about nuclear energy. Uh, but they also had a big session where they had uh, policymakers. So they had, uh, among other people, uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. And uh, Manchin was talking about how obviously West Virginia is famous as a big coal producing state. Um, and, and that is probably going to be changing as uh, the uh, as the years roll on. And uh, there are opportunities to take old coal energy producing uh, plants and stick in nuclear using the same infrastructure and that this is one of these sort of like transitional things that they're trying to plan for. Um, but what I thought was interesting uh, about, you know, people understanding like where the electricity comes from, it comes out, comes out of the wall, uh, is that, you know, if you have a, an EV or if you have, uh, you know, you're driving a Tesla in West Virginia, um, that's not really an electric powered car so much as it's a coal powered car. Right, because currently that the electricity that's coming <laughs> to power your EV is coming from a coal-fired power plant, um, and I, I think a lot that might surprise a lot of people <laughs> because they they assume that like electric vehicles, for example, are this you know new green climate-conscious environmentally friendly uh, technology, um, but they don't necessarily think about how those different parts of the system go together. I saw a custom license plate on a Tesla that said coal power. And I thought that was hilarious that, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, the, if, if you're going all electric in the case of transportation or in the case of home appliances, all of that stuff, if you don't like your gas stove, you want to go, you know, if, if, if you want to electrify everything is, is sort of the catchphrase. If you want to do that uh, and you think it's the environmentally friendly thing to do, it does depend entirely on what's producing that power in the first place. So the primary energy source is, you know, is, is the real key there. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's coal. Our biggest source of electricity in the U S right now is gas. So, um, you know, if you, if you don't like fracking, you're, you know, you're, you're driving a, a fracked gas car in a lot of cases. So uh, it is that second level of sort of understanding where things come from, um, hugely important. Um, and I'm not sure, I mean, probably your, your Tesla driver is, is probably going to be a little bit more educated on that stuff than average, but I'm not sure. I, I still see a whole lot of, well, it's just like a, a feel good kind of a thing. And you don't really scrutinize the details. Well, yeah. And so we're looking, you know, we look at this whole 
broad sweep of energy environment issues today, you know, we really have two major concerns. I think some people on of one ideological orientation sort of forget the other or pay less attention to the other, which is, you know, how do we produce enough energy so that it is reliable and affordable for people so we can power stuff, so we can keep the lights on? Um, and how do we do it in a way that we can have manageable impacts on the environment, right? Really concerns about whether it's uh, emissions in the air that you breathe in or things like parts per million of carbon dioxide, people worried about climate change. To what extent, and there's been a lot of argument back and forth about whether these are uh, inherently conflicting goals or a lot of people have come along and said, oh, actually there's no conflict because we've sort of created this magic policy solution that's win, win, win. So there's no, there's no conflict at all, forget about it. Um, in, the, in the long term, and you know, the, we're coming up to the, the next uh, United Nations um, uh, Climate Summit, the Conference of the Parties, uh, where people will be talking a lot about uh, stuff like this. On a sort of economy-wide level, on a policy level, is this a major conflict or we can, can we sort of just finesse it with technology, like having enough electricity for everybody, but also having manageable environmental impacts? I'd like to get back to a market test. So when when folks talk about sort of their favorite technologies, and it's usually something like, oh, well, we should use the existing grid, and we've already got the sort of the transmission and the substations for the coal plant, so let's just put nuke on the same site. That's probably what the the mansion approach was was hinting at. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the real question is, oh, let's just let the market decide, and we are so far from doing that. There's, uh, you know. Most states, it's something like 30 states now, have mandates for specific types of technology. You know, that they, you know, these are renewable portfolio standards. Um, I, I prefer to call them energy mandates, but so there's a lot of that at the state level. Um, Joe Manchin also gets credit for uh helping pass the Inflation Reduction Act, which basically doubles and triples down on this idea that the the federal government should subsidize, should sort of pick winners through direct subsidy. Um, so you have both of those going on at the same time. I think the only way to figure out what's going to work and what is actually in conflict with a healthy economy versus not is just to, you know, to actually have a, a, a market test for all this stuff. And we're so far removed from that, that it's hard to tell, like, you, you know, you have some folks that would speculate, well, Wind and solar, the costs have come down so much that all we have to do is let them win in the marketplace. And I'm sympathetic to that. I would say, great. This is great news. Let's let's remove the subsidies and they'll just win. So that's that's great for all of us. So that would be an example of not being in conflict. The huge conflict that I see is, I mean, the cost of the, the IRA is going to be staggering. I've read some materials that especially if you go out beyond sort of the 10 year budget window, uh, cause that, that's where the, the estimates are already different cause there's so many different variables, but it's something like a trillion dollars in the first decade. But then what happens after that? Uh, I think, I think the trillions keep coming about a trillion a decade. So it depends how long we allow it to stay on the books, but you know, we're, we're so far removed from this idea that we even know what the market would would do you can guess but uh with with the policies that that we have on the books it's really hard to tell sort of which which technologies are more consistent with a market-based approach all right and to go back to uh the inflation reduction act this big 
giant sprawling piece of legislation where it involved and and, and senator manchin uh, uh recently was was talking about this as well where he said you know at mansion uh you know it's democrat but he's famous for being the most conservative democrat the most like republican adjacent democrat um you know he said in this uh big you know main stage interview in front of the conference that the inflation reduction act for him was supposed to be about uh you know deficit reduction and uh being pro energy and that the Biden administration had gone out and the Democrats had sold it out as an environmental bill. Uh, and so that that he said that made my Republican friends very angry. Right. Uh, so that it was sort of, you know, left wing coded rather than right wing coded to, you know, put it in like you know, sociological terms. Um, and so, he you know, in, in his view, it was very, you know, very responsible thing to do. And, and there was supposed to be a couple hundred billion dollars of deficit reduction that came came out of the IRA. Um, but like you said, subsequent analyses on what the actual fiscal impact is going to be in long term have suggested that actually it's going to be uh, uh, add massively uh, to the deficit. And and so obviously that changes dramatically what what you think about the bill, right? If if, if it was the sort of compromise that was passed saying, well, we're going to give some subsidies to renewable energy, but we're also going to to cut back on the deficit at the same time with these other provisions. And then you find out, oh, wait, no, actually, <laughs> it does the exact opposite. Then that puts us in a different position about whether we think it's a good idea or not, you know, on top of all the other specific provisions that we may like may like or not like. But one of the reasons why it was going to be so expensive long term is that these subsidies are sort of uncapped, right? Like they didn't, they didn't say, well, we're going to give everyone who buys a new EV a $5,000 tax credit up to a certain amount. Right. Uh, and so if things go go great from the perspective of, of the sponsors and we get uh, more EVs and more charging stations and more all this more of the stuff that's being subsidized, well, that's more subsidy money that the, the federal government is going to have to deal with. Yeah, that's right. Some provisions do expire. I believe the one that I'm most concerned about is the one that does not expire. So let's keep in mind, too, that this is the same senator who in a campaign ad. He took a rifle and he shot a hole in the cap and trade bill. And he said he was going to, you know, contain spending in D.C. and all this other stuff. Um, this is the same guy who who pushed that the IRA. So with that context, it really is surprising that he would have supported it. And it makes me wonder if he really got into the details of it, because the main thing that I'm concerned about is the it's called the production tax credit. It's basically you get something approaching the the market price of the commodity so this is you know the 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 unit is dollars per megawatt hour so if you're a generator you basically get this subsidy no matter when or where you produce it it's going to cause lots of problems and it's open ended in the sense that it says it's going to end the later of and it gives two things the later of the year 2032 which i think got a lot of people thinking that it was going to end in 2032 but it's the later of that or when the electricity grid decarbonizes to a level that's only 25% of the GHG emissions that we had in the year 2022. So based on a whole bunch of different uh, scenarios, like I just also based on sort of gut level knowledge, especially if we, if we're creating a world where we're going to put a lot of different things, including EVs and home fuel use and all of that stuff on the grid, we're only going to increase the amount of electricity we use. The idea that we can lower the level of GHG emissions to that, 
I don't, I don't think that's feasible. So this is just a wide open, never ending tax credit scheme that I think is going to end up pouring. If, if, if we don't change it, it's going to end up pouring, you know, two, three, four trillion dollars at this. So that's the other thing. If, if you, if you bought into the IRA because you thought it was actually going to reduce inflation and you thought it was going to constrain spending, it's the exact opposite. And, you know, the, the original scoring was something like only 300 and something billion dollars for, for green energy. I think it's 10 times that. And the more people wrap their minds around that and say, wow, this is not only not reducing the deficit, it's, you know, it's a wide open, it's not just a handout, but it's just a staggering amount of money. Yeah. And that you're, I feel like you're sort of hinting at, at, at something that, you know, has, has come up a lot in these conversations as well, which is the, the electrify everything idea that we're going to take, <clears throat> excuse me, we're going to take all the things that uh, are now powered by, uh, you know, hydrocarbon energy, which is gasoline powered vehicles and things like, you know, even things like electric stoves, unnatural gas, or uh, natural gas stoves moving to electric. Uh, that is going to increase demand on our, on our electrical grid uh, dramatically, right? If you, if you electrified every single vehicle in America, um, even just every passenger vehicle, you know, leaving out the, you know, the heavy trucks and everything, uh, you would need a massive expansion of America's electrical grid and more transmission lines and things. But those things are very difficult to build and permit. That they're, yep. they're expensive and they're long-term. And because of the uncertainty and whether they're going to be permitted or not, it's difficult to line up financing for them. Um, you could take, you know, <clears throat> and you could build, you could potentially create a development project to build a plant, uh, you know, especially something like, you know, a wind or solar plant. But if it's not near the place where the population center where the electricity is going to be needed, then you need these like high power uh, transmission lines. And those, especially over state lines, are also very difficult to, to build. And the process of getting through, you know, legal review can be very long and complicated. So, you know, I wonder, is there going to be a kind of reality moment? Is there going to be like a kind of reality train wreck at some point where we have our decarbonization goals and we're pushing more and more stuff on the grid, but the grid's not being upgraded fast enough to handle it? What's going to happen? So I don't like to make predictions, but th this one seems fairly certain to happen in some fashion. What's going to happen, I believe, is so some folks already see this. We're going to need a lot of transmission, a lot of new transmission. If the big if, if you actually want to do this wind and solar transition, you need transmission. I have a friend who says there's no transition without transmission. I mean, it's it's catchy and it it makes perfect sense because the places where you can site a large solar farm, a large wind farm, those aren't really close to where people use energy. So you need a line to to transmit it. I mean, that's just that's basic. But then the question is, well, can you even do that? And can you do it in time? And at what cost? And all of these questions, I think, need to be fleshed out. I think that's sort of the, you know, to to go back to the idea that, well, if it's a simple system, it's easy to transform. It's not a simple system, and it's very complex to transform. And it includes things like the rights of way. Do you need new rights of way? Do you have to basically clear cut through existing property lines. How do you do that? Can you do it without an eminent domain authority? Then all of a sudden it's, well, you're building overhead transmission lines. And some people are arguing that you should get the same eminent domain authority that you get to basically for, for gas pipelines that end up getting buried. 
And these are really sticky policy questions. And then the other one is who pays for it? Even if we can agree on how much it's going to cost, there's the cost allocation question of sort of, is this a federal government enterprise? Should taxpayers have to pay for it? Do we allocate it to electricity customers? And then it's, you know, there's all of these questions, but it's just, I think there is going to be a moment when the her simplicity and the allure of something like you can just say it really easily net zero by 2050 it's such an easy thing to say up front but actually carrying it out carrying it through is going to be so messy and so expensive that i wonder if people are going to start saying i know i said i liked net zero by 2050 i know or a company you know there's all these company pledges and states have their own policies that say we're going to be zero carbon or carbon neutral by 2050 as that date gets closer and closer, and keep in mind, transmission lines can take upwards of 10 years to even be put in service. Once you figure out all the details of where to plan it and where to site it and all that stuff, it's still a really lengthy process. So then the question is, are people going to be able to elegantly drop or maybe do a a soft pivot from the original goal? And we've already seen some people say, yeah, we still like net zero, but maybe maybe push the year out a little bit. That's the kind of thing that I'm going to see. I, I that that's the if I can make a prediction that I feel decently confident about that it's going to be something like that. We're we're going to have to change our minds because the 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 goal I don't think was ever a good one in the first place. But I think as people realize sort of the details of how we get there, how expensive it's going to be, how complicated. Um, here, here's a great example. The state of California is somewhat of a leading indicator here where they've gone farther with their transition. They're very heavy on solar. So then the question is, do we get to use electricity when we want to, or do we get to use electricity when it's available from an intermittent resource? That is going to take a shift too. And my sense is that people are not going to be welcoming of that shift. People in California where the weather's nice, and if they're well off enough, maybe they can even self-generate, who knows. But when it gets to be, I don't know, freezing outside, and the question is, can you run your electric heater or not? I don't think people are going to say, well, the wind's not blowing, so I have to do what I have to do. I think people are going to say, I want electricity when I want it, and I, I'm not going to bend to this new paradigm. So that it's, it's something like that. Some That's going to force a lot of interesting conversations. Well, yeah, I mean, based on the the sort of paths and projections we have for these goals, based on, like you said, the you know the the ten years it might take to you know build a new transmission line, um, <clears throat> you know, it seems like a crack up could be could be coming sooner rather than later. And like you know, you point out certainly in Southern California, weather is very mild, right? Um, but you know, we had record winter uh, snowfall in Northern California, and the Sierra Nevada mountains aren't, aren't aren't known for their mild climate, especially in, in the winter time. And even a place uh, like Texas, if you were going to like slot all the states uh, in this country into like hot states and cold states, Texas would probably be a hot state. But when they had a winter uh, energy crisis, uh, dozens of people died. So even in a place that uh, we generally think of as 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 not a, a freezing cold place, can have really big impacts if they don't have energy reliability um, in extreme weather. So, you know, this also makes me uh, think of 
you know, like you said, making making predictions is tough, but you know, this is what people are sort of interested in. Well, like what what comes next in uh, in Congress? We we seem to be pretty uh, uh, evenly split, right? We've got a very evenly split both House and Senate, uh, tiny majorities on either side. Um, but that is probably going to change to at least some extent after the next election. You know, what is your your sort of crystal ball, you know, imagine we have, you know, some kind of Republican majority uh, and we've got a p- policy path. What do you think a, ma- a Republican majority would do on these issues? And what do you think uh, a Democratic majority would do? And how far apart are those? I think in my issue area, in terms of the energy and environmental policy, it's right, yeah. it's pretty much day and night. I mean, it. Uh, so what the Democrats would like to do I think is go even further. So we saw what they did with the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I think they would like something even further, something like a national clean energy standard was was one idea that was on the table. Um, when they were forced to basically go the budget reconciliation route, they realized that sort of the the true sweeping policies were off the table. It had to be a financial tool. It had to be a subsidy. Um, so I think if they ever got to either a 60 vote majority in the Senate, you would see something even more sweeping and you would see things like, I think, a carbon tax on top of everything we already have. And you would see very little resistance and maybe even a uh, a bill in Congress that would explicitly do what the EPA is doing now. Um, and I think what the EPA is doing now is illegal and is essentially, we, we haven't really talked about it, but their their new power plant rule, this is very similar to what they tried to do starting in 2015. They called it the clean power plan back then. Uh, they don't really give it a cute name this time, but it's very similar. And it was struck down by the Supreme Court. I think if there were a legislative directive to do exactly what EPA is doing, it would be upheld. The problem with EPA, what the EPA is doing now is it's taking a you know, a statute from the 70s and saying, ah, aha, we found something new we can do here in this old statute. Uh, We're going to remake the economy with the, you know, with the Clean Air Act. Um, So I would expect something like that from Democrats. Now, um, from Republicans, I, I wish that I could be more optimistic. I, you know, of course, they would do something different. My personal experience, especially going back to the 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 Trump administration at the DOE in 2017, it wasn't a let's unleash the markets. It was the closest you got to that was on the LNG export question. So we wanted to export gas everywhere. And that that was uh, that was the closest you got to sort of a pure market approach. Uh, when it came to the U.S. electric grid, it was more of like, well, how do we you know, the, the key word was resilience. But really, it was a it was a, how do we keep coal plants running? Um even when it doesn't make sense to do that. So what what I what I would like to see is a return to sort of a free market approach, uh, a, a capitalist, a free enterprise approach, which you would hope for from the right. But um, in practice, it depends who it is and what their priorities are. It could be that they actually like the idea of either bailing out an industry, which I think is a terrible idea, or um, we've seen a proposal. This is a Senator Cassidy proposal to basically institute, you know, he's calling it a foreign pollution fee, but it's basically a carbon tax. That's uh, it's it's an import tariff 
that's that's built on sort of a carbon intensity question. Um, so that's the kind of stuff we're seeing from the right as of today. So I I, I kind of wish they would uh, trend in a more free market direction, but uh, honestly, it's I'm 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 not sure anymore. Well, you know, there's one thing about uh, that that description that uh, sort of uh, tr- triggered the back of my brain, which is the idea that, uh, uh, you know, say if Democrats had a big majority, they would pass a carbon tax. And uh, as you said, on top of everything else. Uh, and it's one of these things that comes up a lot in um, people's sort of prognostications and they're theorizing about uh, public policy, about, you know, we, you know, we can solve this big problem and Congress can do X, Y and Z. And and they get they get really excited about uh, proposing these like theoretical policy swaps and big grand deals and things like that. Um, so it, it, it's in things like you know people who want a universal basic income, you know, and they say, well, we'll have a we'll get everyone will have a universal basic income, but we'll get rid of all the like all the existing um, welfare programs, right? And it'll be this big swap, and it'll be the the sort of thing that you know political science students write papers about and it'll be grand bargain cool yeah grand the grand bargain and so people have said this for for years going back a long time you have had you know libertarians free market people that said well maybe we should have a carbon tax but we'll get rid of everything else whatever you know they're a little vague on what what all that would be um they're like oh we'll like abolish every other environmental restriction right and we'll just have a carbon tax and then everyone would be happy with that um you know, my uh, my objection to those sort of like grand bargain proposals is um, one, they won't work. <laughs> one, they'll never get passed in the first place. Uh, but two, even if in some sort of fantasy world, you had both sides agree to such a swap, the things that were swapped away would just get repassed and re-implemented because there was a constituency for and an incentive for them in the first place. And the, the grand bargain wouldn't remove those incentives for them coming into existence in the first place. So it wouldn't stop them from recoming back into existence. Um, that's that's my version of this. Um, do you think there's any sort of like bargain potential there? Like, you know, can we, you know, do we like repeal the National Environmental Policy Act, but we'll have a, you know, a $20 per ton carbon tax instead? Is that a, is that a thing? Most of these bargains that I hear about, I, I like the one side of it, like repeal NEPA. I'm, you know, if that's going to boost the economy, let's just do that. <laughs> uh, but I, I I have heard this argument that wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be simpler if we just did a carbon tax or it's, you know, they usually use different language now. Wouldn't it be simpler to, sim- to simply price carbon and remove the regulations, the subsidies, the mandates? Um, even if I bought into that in principle, and I'm not sure I do because there's all sorts of details about the carbon tax that make it problematic. Like, how do you establish the level? Um, usually folks just say, well, you tax it at whatever amount makes it go away. Like that's not exactly the Pagovian approach <laughs> to carbon tax. But the point you bring up is incredibly valid. And it's actually a piece that I have just started writing, which is if we wanted to enumerate the list of things that you would need to trade in to make a carbon tax make sense on economic efficiency grounds. So that's all the regulations. That's the whole EPA paradigm. There's everything from DOE energy efficiency standards that have sort of a, a carbon emissions you know, justification behind them. Um, even if you wanted to do that at the federal level, I think it's really difficult. And a lot of the stuff, you know, if if there's some element of even a FERC policy that has a, a, a carbon motivation behind it, then you're asking an independent agency to do something. And that that's not exactly the kind of thing that you can just do in a sweeping fashion. 
All of those details aside, that's just federal level. That's the easiest part. Then the question is, do you address everything that happens at the state level? So these are all these state mandates that we've already talked about. Then even further, do you get into building codes? There's all these green building codes. Well, you don't need those anymore if you price carbon because then everything just falls into place. Um, so I am completely with you in the sense that I don't even think they get repealed in the first place. Even if you pass a bill that says we swear we're gonna try to we're gonna try our best to repeal all this stuff. I just don't see it happening at all. I see this as a complete pancaking exercise that it just comes on top of everything else, which is part of the reason I I don't like the the Cassidy approach with the carbon tariff is it I think it walks us right into this paradigm of first the tariff, then attacks on us within the US, and then all of it is just on top of what the EPA is doing, which we haven't gone into those details, but the gist is they're outlawing, they've already outlawed new coal plants. They're essentially outlawing the most efficient type of gas plant. This is a combined cycle plant that it's one of the most beautiful designs that I've ever seen is you have up front, you have a, you know, something like a, a jet engine. It's just a turbine that runs on gas that, that's, that spins the turbine. That's its own generator. And then you have maybe two or three of those operating. They generate a lot of heat, significant amount of heat. So then what you can do is take the heat from those generators. Then you sort of, you have a, a steam function. So you, you use that heat, you run a separate steam generator, which used to be the old school way to, to have a gas plant. It was just the steam part. Um, but, but the combined cycle unit is the most efficient way to generate the electricity that we've ever come up with. EPA has just proposed to ban it. I think people should be losing their minds over this. So it's it's stuff like that where I'm like, I, you know, if that went away, that would be great. But I don't see a world where the environmentalists say, uh, yeah, that whole plan that we just came up with that we spent years on. Yeah, let's just throw that in the trash and we'll 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 just we'll just do the carbon tax. So I I really, you know, as much as people want to talk about a grand bargain, and I will engage in that conversation to see what exactly is on the table. I'm happy to engage in that conversation. I'm very skeptical that anybody would want to come to the table and especially on the environmental left side. And, and actually, it, especially when it comes to this, you know, the if the grand bargain includes permitting reform, if it includes making it easier to build gas pipelines, can you imagine somebody saying, yes, let's make it easier to build gas pipelines because we have a carbon tax now and it makes sense. Uh, we're already at the optimal level because of the carbon tax. So why not build the gas pipelines? I just can't fathom it. I, I would I would welcome that conversation. I just can't fathom it. All right. Well, <clears throat> it sounds like we might have to settle for small bargains for, <laughs> for going forward. What we're really settling with is knife fights at the regulatory agency <laughs> level, um, which, again, I guess that's what I'm here for. I'm very happy to do it. But, um, yeah, I, I just don't I just can't see a grand bargain right now. OK, well, we'll, we'll get to work on the regulatory comments. Uh, Travis, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, before we go, uh, let people know where they can uh, find you and your uh, your material online. So I just started a Substack so that people can find what I post on the Cato blog more easily, travisfisher.substack.com. Uh, I am on X. I somewhat regret having a presence on that platform, but uh, <laughs> it's mostly it's mostly good for sharing ideas. It's at TS underscore Fisher. Find my work at Cato.org, uh, I think. I think that's about it. I also, I, you know, I, I have an open door policy. If folks want to engage on, on, on policy issues, I'm, I'm always happy to do that. All right. Excellent. Uh, uh, thanks again. It's great to be here. Thank you.
That's our show for this week. This has been episode 49 of Free the Economy. I'm your host, Richard Morrison. Our producer is Ryan Krasinski and our technical advisor is Ryan Lynch. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week for episode 50.